You're listening to As Read By Me, the podcast where writers read and readers listen. Greetings and happy Halloween, readers. I'm Dave Stiles, and welcome to our first annual Super Creepy Halloween episode. Actually, this episode starts creepy, gets creepier, and then ends on a very pleasant note, courtesy of a beautiful cleansing fall meditation by Heidi Bank. But first up, we have a delicious cup of poetry from Paul Camerata, followed by a haunting short story read by Perry Genovese. Let's go. Hi, I'm Paul Camerata, and this is Horror Story, as read by me. To be more than a monster was once one man's dream, a revitalized man who loved coffee and cream. He baked the best quiches, award-winning scones, but spoke in a way that scared folks to their bones. From this predicament would eventually grow Frankenstein's Grunt, Café and Bistro. At the start, he was famous just for being undead, until the owner gained acclaim for his monkey bread. The imported Arabicas, organic chais, all roused his patrons like bolts from the sky. Still, not all the walk-ins were ready to see a Frankenstein monster serving them tea. Some shrieked while others turned pale as a ghost, no matter how nice the greetings of the host. And yes, when he said hi, was how it sounded. But their fears of violence were totally unfounded. Frankenstein's grunt was a symbol of the passion this exhumed barista had in him for dashing. The walls of the cage the world put him in, the moment it spotted his recycled skin. So on Frankenstein pressed, serving French pressed for breakfast, building the grunt into one of the best cafes and bistros you could ever try. Have no fear that you hear is just him saying hi. Hi, I'm Perry Genovese, and this is W.H. Barlow's Dying Wish, as read by me. The grenadine tissue paper flickered from the open jewelry box. Inside, the peach pit appeared to bob in the crinkles. This was the funeral of T.H. Barlow of the Battery Elevator Company. The peach pit was the last thing he'd choked on. Two rose red plastic cups wheeled on a reception table. The table stood next to four aisles dotted with people. Mrs. Barlow, widowed, scowled at the jewelry box, at the pit sitting upright in a tissue sea. She smoothed her black dress over her knees and picked off cat hair. She turned to her 30-year-old grandson, Marlson. She cupped her hands over his fist. With her thumbnails, she massaged the skin over his knuckles. Marlson said, When you're out walking and you come to a river, that's another path you can take. What did you say? That's something Pop-Up always said. Mrs. Barlow said, Ridiculous spectacle of a funeral. Looks more like a shop party with these red cups. Pastor Blaine had slicked his hair back with a wide tooth comb. The ridges in his hair resembled sand tracks. His pink oval head shone underneath. 
he strode up the three steps to the podium. As he drifted under the bony ceiling fan, his white cassock's bottom hems swished. Brothers and sisters, he said. He raised his arms and his cuffs fell back to his elbows. We're gathered here today to remember the late Thaddeus Henry T.H. Barlow, or Hen, for those of us who knew him personally. He lowered his arms. But I'm sure if you were here, you did know Hen. Hard not to. He was more a brother to me than friend, inspired my path, fostered my love of nature. When we were boys, we'd stroll in his woods together. Wouldn't you know, Hen picked the first tick off me, a sucker right on my wrist. The air conditioner's roar cut off. It exposed an ambience of chair legs scraping and rain jackets rustling in seats. Mrs. Barlow thought Pastor Blaine's sermons always sounded cold. She allowed her eyes to close and saw startling, vivid chartreuse green. She whipped up her head. It felt as how a candle can pass its flame beyond the shut-eye seal, but there was nothing chartreuse in this white room. She picked up her purse, brushing its base before seating it in her lap. She dug out a wadded tissue, blotted her forehead, and took off her glasses. She dabbed at her nose the impression left by the glasses' pads. Then she crushed the tissue into her purse. She still couldn't shake the impression the color left. Every time she blinked, it burned behind her eyelids. To steady herself, she placed her right hand on Amarlson's shoulder. At her vision's fringe, sidetracked by nausea, her hand appeared to blend into his blazer. Then something zipped across her palm. It seared like a rope burn. She turned. A mysterious black leather glove now bound her right hand. Four holes beamed over her exposed knuckles. Two more rows of smaller studded vents, ringed by metal grommets, extended. They ceased at the storm of blue veins at her wrist. The shock of this glove jolted her from the green wall behind her eyes. She slid her forefinger past the cuff and tried worming it into the mitt. Her cuticle bulged onto the leather. Feet pushed off the floor. Mrs. Barlow slid back into the seat, heels palpitating across tile. Both hands twisted in her lap. Grandma, whispered Marlson. What's that? He pointed to the glove. Even at age 30, he lived in his own insulated world. This is my funeral glove, she said. She pet her wrist with her other hand. It felt soggy. Grown-ups wear them when they're doing important things, she said. She wedged her fist into her purse. Marlson laced his arm between hers and rested his head on her shoulder. Pastor Blaine's voice boomed now. Still strolling, hands behind his back, he pulled on his arm and his elbow audibly popped. He withdrew his head into his chin's ripples. Hen always used to say when you're out walking, he was a man of nature, a man devoted to the solitude of being alone in nature. He used to say that when you're out walking and you come to a river, you've actually come to another path, that that's another path you can take. Mrs. Barlow clawed at her wrist. She tore at the glove. As she struggled, a roll of quarters rattled into a thick key ring and a small corn-yellow box cutter. 
A lifesaver's log lay hollow, its wrapper corkscrewed. Not now, she groaned. Pastor Blaine said, Hen was one of the few men who understood how the world works. I can't count myself among that sprinkling. No, I can't. And he bowed. Marlson whispered into her sleeve, How does the world work, Grandma? Her chin pressed against her necklace. She was up to her elbows in tan, woven, wobbling purse. She said, Money, that's how it works. And with that, the glove slipped off, and from inside it, a gush of water drained and settled. The lifesaver's wrapper fattened. The tissue grayed. The box cutter gleamed. She said, Son of a bitch. After a miserable receiving line, Marlson and Mrs. Barlow stood outside the church and waited for Pastor Blaine. Someone had jammed a rubber-orange doorstop under the black door frame, but those at the heads of the meager line still reached to hold the door open. Marlson watched a young boy stick his palm against the door's glass. The peach skin puckered. Next to the second set of doors, someone had stationed an overflowing can of cigarettes. One full cigarette rolled in the wind. Blue wisps pulsed toward the parking lot. Finally, Pastor Blaine ambled out with his hand on the shoulder of a man with a hair-white beard. The older man seized the stairs' handrail and staggered down the five stone steps. "'Ah, Mrs. Barlow,' said Pastor Blaine, patting her frail shoulder. His breath smelled like garlic. He turned to Marlson. "'Hello, Mr. Marlson.' "'Hello, priest.' said Marlson. Blaine drew his fist from the cassock and spread his fingers. In his palm sat the peach pit in the open jewelry box. He shut it with a snap. Now I am entrusting this to you, Mrs. Barlow, right? said Pastor Blaine. Yeah. And we know there's a fair amount of trust in entrust. Trust to refrain from the things the Lord's not meant for us to do. The things he has, in fact, Forbidden us, yes? Give it here, she said. Mrs. Barlow released her grip on the chestnut-brown strap that kept her purse at her rib. It swung toward her stomach. She took the box in both hands. He failed to resist. She eased it into her wet purse and tightened the cords. Rain sheeted down and glossed the concrete. Marlson and Mrs. Barlow drove home in the Burgundy Ford Taurus, Marlson's fingers laced in the steering wheel. He lurched forward in his seat. Turn signals twinkled through the window. When he glanced over at his grandmother, her eyes were closed. She looked like she was enjoying a wonderful dream. Now at home, Marlson, who was tall enough, took the jewelry box from his grandmother's icy hands. He set it on the mantel, hidden behind an ornamental brown jug. The late Thaddeus Henry Barlow's garden faced his treasured woods and river. It was a mossy, fenced-in pocket behind the house. At its western boundary stood a black fence and Marlson's basketball hoop. The net strings had long ago stained green. Marlson laid a teal spade next to the jewelry box. He knelt in dirt-creased denim shorts. Soil lodged inside the handle's ornamental clefts and caked the blade's edge. He was ecstatic that his grandmother was finally showing him how to garden. We should start to plant his pit, he said, gazing at her. Mrs. Barlow nodded to the sky. It was a foreboding green, the same chartreuse that had blazed behind her eyelids the day before. 
Can't imagine why priests didn't want us to do this, said Marlson as he dug. He wondered about his grandmother's resulting silence. He hunted for something non-offensive to talk about. Leaves are staying wet, he said, even though it hasn't really rained since last night. They are, she said. He popped open the jewelry box and plucked out the pit and dropped it into the hole. He caught the tissue paper before it blew away. Then his hand combed across the soil, burying the pit. Over it, he crossed two twigs. Dirt crescents lined his fingernails. When will Papa be back, said Marlson. Soon, I hope now, she said. He'll grow in a kind of pea pod. Then we'll have to worry about the smell. I don't understand why people have to die, said Marlson. Then, if he makes it through without any molestation, we'll get a thin, thin membrane. Then what? Then we'll have to worry about the squirrels and starlings who want to masticate him. The sun rose the color of orange juice. Marlson sprang from bed too fast, and the periwinkle sheets snagged his ankle. He tumbled onto the linoleum. She snored with crimson curlers in her hair. He found her wet purse lying upside down, its contents splayed across the dresser. He lifted the corn-colored box cutter. He analyzed his wrists. Two paths when you come to a river, he mouthed the words. There would be a moment of great pain, but this was what Pop-Pop had told him. He couldn't bring himself to do it. So he looked at his sleeping grandmother. No, not her either. He retracted the blade and set it on the dresser. He raced down the stairs and through the garage. In the garden, he found Pastor Blaine standing in a washed black cassock. Globular dirt circles stained his knees. In garden gloves, Pastor Blaine pinched the peach pit between thumb and index. His other hand grasped a shovel. He cratered the plot Marlson filled and tossed aside its twigs. Can't let you do this, Marlson, he crowed. And I know what you're thinking, that it's my right, that Pastor Blaine has no authority to do this. He slipped the pit under his cassock, released the shovel, and it tipped into the dirt. He hooked his finger into the garden glove's cuff and pulled it off. Sutured to his skin was another glove. What the hell? he cried. The glove's cloth, if one could call it cloth, was a ragged jigsaw of fish scale scraps. A crenellated blue and white trout belly flayed around his wrist like a shackle. A strip of rust-brown eel skin shone. A single blood-red tentacle writhed between and under the strips of marine crust. It acted as a kind of demented stitching, holding the butcherwork all together. Pastor Blaine rolled his cassock's cuff further to reveal a mucousy, petrified, shad-gray sleeve with kelp strung across it. I'm, I'm going to take this to the rectory now. His shoulder wilted. He nursed his arm. For safekeeping, if you, he winced, if you two are using it so disgracefully. Rotting fish smell rushed to his throat's back. Mrs. Barlow pushed her head outside the window and glared down. The curlers thorned her hair. Blaine, she shouted. We're free to do with him whatever we choose. It's ours to say. The treetops swayed as she spoke. From the leaves, two clots of cardinals burst out and swarmed. Pastor Blaine stuck his hands inside his robe and slunk out through the fence. He threw himself into an idling plum-colored crown Victoria. He reversed down the driveway. Marlson raised the shovel and cupped one hand to his lips. Now what? 
he called. Mrs. Barlow leaned her chin on her wrist and tweaked her focus to the treetops. Now, now I don't know what we do. Hi, this is Heidi Bank, and this is a poem called Fall Meditation, as read by me. I step from the house to the wooded backyard deck into a flat autumn morning. Not gray like storms or depression, but a neutral mat, warm and friendly, that offsets the oranging and yellowing leaves. I lay my mat and my cushion on the deck, facing the trees, between the house and the picnic table, which hug me. When I shut my eyes and place my hands in my lap, I try to become one with the fall. The leaves gently float from the trees, landing on the deck like raindrops, and I sit so still that the squirrels ravaging the pumpkins skitter past me like I'm part of the trees. Breathe. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the podcast and the authors, visit asreadbyme.com. If you're a writer and would like to read one of your stories on an upcoming episode, send an email to writers at asreadbyme.com. If you like the show and would like to help us avoid the scary proposition of commercials, you can support us by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash asreadbyme. Happy Halloween!